Today we have an amazing conversation about how complex the human brain is. You're not going to want to miss it. Our guests today, Brandon and Brianna Rose. Brianna and Brandon, welcome to No Gray Area. So glad to have you here. And I'm going to jump right in and just say that we're going to talk about a subject that I don't really know much about. I was going to I was going to dig into this and explore it a little bit, but I thought I'm going to be like the audience and learn as we go. So we're going to talk about attachment theory, how that's connected to choices. But before we get there, we actually have a connection. We go back a little ways, which means there's no way you're going to stump me with the two truths and a lie, right? So <laughs> Brianna, tell, try. how, how far try. back do we go, right? We know each 13, other. So. 13 years. Yeah, it's 13 years. Yeah, wild. You, you were just right? coming out of high school. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Cool. so you were doing something with... Yeah, anti-trafficking. So I had learned about anti-trafficking in high school and then connected with the aftercare program you were working with. And so you really like took me under your wing and gave me like a little group to be like my committee and made the program a part of what you were doing. Yes, yes. (laughs) But you you just really mentored me throughout all of that. And so I think a lot of like the wisdom and discernment and direction that we've taken with Red Light Rebellion now was very much shaped by like your influence and mentorship in that time. So tell us a little bit about red light rebellion so brand you know you're a couple yes. you're married yes. how long have you been married nine years yeah yeah, yeah. crazy now we're uh, pros at this whole marriage thing yeah so. <laughs> nine, it all out nine years point. when did yeah, you become yeah. a pro like six months in yeah you did okay did, okay because yeah. we've been married 31 years and we're still <laughs> trying to figure it out <laughs> yeah. so so you've been married nine years you guys do this together then Red Light Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And uh, when, did, when did you launch that? When did you start that? Just yeah. Bring... So I had first heard about sex trafficking going into my junior year of high school at a church yeah. camp. Felt God tell me to lead a movement against it. I thought it only happened in Cambodia. So I was yeah. like, yeah. well, me too. I don't want to go there. So let's forget about this. Yeah. <laughs> and then six months later is when my church announced they're helping to launch the first aftercare program for minors here in the States. Okay. And then my mom was very excited because she's like, you don't have to go to Cambodia. It's <laughs> yeah. going on yeah. right here. Yeah. Um, And so immediately got involved because I I was like, oh, shoot, like that's I thought it just happened overseas. But now I'm finding out it's happening right here. The average age of entry is 13 years old. So me and my little brother and our friends were like the target for this. And so there's a lot, a lot going on. You were doing the documentary. The aftercare program is being built. And it was the first time that Phoenix had in Arizona had really had like a grassroots awareness movement that was happening to say, hey, this isn't just an overseas problem. This is our problem. And so being a high school student, I was like, well, are the high school students being told about this? And everyone was just like targeting. Like they're targeting high school. Yeah. And so but I just took it very personally. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, we didn't talk to the students. Yeah. And so um, everyone else was doing really good work. And it was just really difficult to get into the schools, um, especially at that time. And so I just kind of yeah, took I, it I on would, myself. I guess just right? jump in. That yeah. When you go talk to superintendents and principals and say, we want to come and talk to the students about sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. That there were some like um, <laughs> some walls on it. Yeah. yeah. In the but, beginning. Yes. In, in the, the beginning. beginning. Yeah. Now I think because we've had the Super Bowl come through twice and so yeah. much um like advertisement and like awareness is done around sex trafficking with that. We noticed that in 2015, right after the Super Bowl came, like everyone was way more open to yeah. our program. But yeah, in the beginning it was really difficult. And so my own school told me no in the beginning. And so then I went to another school whose principal was a believer and pulled the God card on him. <laughs> and so um they're the first school to let us in. Yeah. And so we built um, Red Light Rebellion's first program my senior year of high school. Yeah. And then got a bunch of volunteers and um, family and friends and mentors together and launched it then. And then 
we got married and shortly after that created our classroom program, which yeah. is now what we've been doing since 2014. So, which means you guys are in, which by the way, if you could, you know, have a little more energy in that, Brandon, it would help. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally joking for the totally, audience. Totally, yeah, they yeah. need to go watch. <laughs> they, they need to go to your, and you're going to give that toward the end, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, how they can connect to you guys. But yeah, you guys now, bring a lot of energy to that classroom. For we sure. do, we yes. do. Yeah. And I kind of more so got involved too once we got married because, um, I had, like pretty much everyone that's grown up post-internet, uh, pornography impacted my life in a negative way. And so I remember um, going through an initial process of addressing that and thinking like, man, how do I like, I just felt this conviction of like, man, I need to do something like, God's calling me to do something to like help break this in yeah. the church. And yeah. um, at that time I was like, do I just walk up to people and be like, hey man, uh, what's your browser history like? I was like, that's an awkward conversation. I don't really know what to do with this. And um, once we got married, Brianna was like, oh man, we need a demand prevention part for Red Light Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And that was when we really kind of put the pieces together of, wow, this is something we can actually both do together. And yeah. so that's when we kind of like, our classroom program got developed. And um, yeah, then we just, uh, everything that I've like wanted to do in terms of brand and just like, pumping things up, uh, it just Energy. got crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cause Brandon's an audio engineer. So then he yeah. brought in the speakers and the subwoofer and yeah. <laughs> like the energy and he would just like go on these almost like rants or jokes. I'm like, I don't know what's happening right yeah. now, yeah. but it turned out perfect. And then it became <laughs> part a, of the script. I've a wedding before, yeah. so I know, <laughs> I, I, I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want me to plug that right now? If anybody needs oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, that, yeah. if you need that, this guy is the guy, man. He brings some life to the party for sure but yeah a lot of energy then and, and so you were reaching a part of the population that they were targeting but wasn't really hearing about it so by the way when we go back wasn't it cool to be part of that grassroots like oh yeah i i, I wish there's no way to I, I i don't know that there's any way to help the audience understand that what was happening in phoenix then was such an amazing story that other cities um, in other parts of the world were going what is going on there because we with this this multi-sector collaboration right like yep. the the FBI and the Vice Squad and ASU and GCU and churches. Yeah. Churches were leading yeah. the yeah. the charge in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that was such a cool well, thing. Well, when you were able to get 60 churches around the valley together, 60 yeah. plus, to all say, to yes, we're going to, yeah, yeah, to build a safe house. Like, I'm not sure we've seen a movement like yeah. that, especially with, within churches for yeah. that. And so, and that's something I think that it's, I don't know, awareness is now so much more commonplace. Yeah. Obviously, there's always a need for more and different populations still haven't heard all the things. But yeah, it was a cool, it was yeah. an exciting time. And I didn't even see nearly as much of it as you did being so much behind the scenes and yeah. like spearheading that with the documentary and everything. Too, yeah, it, so. was, it was a good time. It was a yeah. good time. But I mean, thank you for what you guys are doing. We're going to jump in that a little bit more, but we'll, and then we'll get to the attachment theory. So this, yeah, yeah. this podcast is about anti-human trafficking, <laughs> so to speak, but it's going to be connected <laughs> yes. yeah, in a way. Absolutely. But let me, let me jump back to something you said, Brandon, which yeah. I think is really good, and I don't want to just leave that point, because pornography is probably a bigger issue today than ever. Like, I'm an old man now. Or I'm getting to be an old man. Fifty. I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in the second half of the my first my first century. See, <laughs> I'm, planning, I'm planning to live past on. No, this, I can't live past hundred. But when I was younger, growing up, if you wanted to get pornography, you had to like walk into a store and you had to look someone face to face. You know, I grew up in a small town and they knew who you were, so you know right, that, that's right. what I, there was a lot of protection mm -hmm. against yeah. me. I remember the first time I saw something it was just happened to see something blowing across the road. But, but that's how we got it. 
Yeah. It's a whole different world now. So there's very few young people that are growing up that aren't having to deal with this in a massive way. Right? Very much. Yeah. We know the average age of exposure to porn is between eight and 11. And so oh my goodness. by the time we're talking to kids in high school, uh, most of them in junior high have been exposed to some extent. And yeah, it's just with the nature of our phones and stuff, like literally every person is three seconds away from um, just seeing really intense things. And um, yeah, there's a lot of just voices and agendas to continue to push that. I, we yeah. know that sex sells yeah. on multiple yeah. fronts. And so um, there's definitely um, the pornography industry has a whole like business yeah. agenda with um, promoting that and everything. And, and so specifically reaching young kids with it too. With yeah. Strategies behind that. And yeah, so because the, they, probably because they know if you get them at that young age, you're going to have them exactly. for life for yeah. most totally, of them because totally. it's going to be like a cocaine addiction. Yes, exactly. And then by the time does the same thing to your brain. Absolutely. By the time they're 18 with a credit card, they've got a lifetime customer, Yeah, which is a really smart business plan. Um, Not so great for society though. (laughs) Well, and the crazy part about it too, is when a child is exposed to porn prepudescent, it affects their brain the same way as if they're being physically sexually abused. And the nature of internet pornography. Wait, wait, say that again, (laughs) because that, yeah. Wow. So uh, a kid that is prepudescent being exposed to pornography, the impact of pornography on their brain is the same as if they're being physically sexually abused. And the nature of pornography is just click, click, click. You're seeing all these different images. Yeah. So the dopamine in their brain is being redlined in a way that is even more severe than taking hits of cocaine or crack or some of these like extreme hardcore drugs. And so now you've got kids that are growing up literally becoming addicted to their own sexual abuse abuse, which is just a wild and horrific thing to think about. Kids growing up that are literally addicted, addicted to their own sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Which is insane. And and yet we respond to it and it's so scary, especially as parents. And like, we're like, oh my gosh, like, no, we don't want you exposed to this, but it's so shame based that it's difficult. And instead of treating the child as being like sexually deviant, it's like, oh, we actually have to treat this child as being a survivor of sexual abuse. Well, and man, shame. I was just in a conversation with my sister-in-law's visiting and my, my wife yesterday, and we were talking about how shame is one of the most detrimental things to us. We make a mistake, we do whatever. But it's the shame that ends up keeping us from coming and actually dealing with that so often or trying to cover it up. What was totally. I suspect that because yeah. you're so public about that now, like almost every time you speak in a classroom, you're sharing, hey, this was something I ba-. was that. Yeah. Was that difficult for you to did yeah, you have to walk through that? It was uh, definitely a process and a journey to get there for sure. In all of our presentations that we do on pornography, I do like share my story at the end because that's the one thing we really want to be intentional about is relieving shame in it, especially because when we're talking about how pornography does fuel the demand for sex trafficking, those two are like linked in a way you can't take apart. Yeah. And uh, the finding out the reasons how someone, um, why someone is turning to pornography is a really important question and helping people dig on that is a thing that we see relieve shame and helps get them the freedom that they want. And um, so, yeah, I went through a very long process in my early twenties of initially addressing this, of um, going to counseling and kind of addressing the root issues of even like how the pornography thing all started. And then even went through a process of having just individual conversations with, I think that first year it was um, a, upwards of 40 different people that I talked through just to be like, hey, I need to clear the air about these things, including family, friends, like mom, dad, sister, all individual conversations. Cause I was like, I've got to take this seriously. I don't want to be, you know, 65 years old with- You came 
clean, if you will, with 40 different people that first year. <laughs> yeah. Individual I, conversations. I was just like, I do not want to be 65 years old with broken relationships and a bunch of baggage and just like things that have gone really south. And so and how do I- courage right there. That's the definition of courage, by the way. <laughs> Kudos to you, seriously. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. yeah, and so you, when you share your story in the classroom, it's, or when you, wherever you share this, it's yeah. almost like you saying, hey, let's get rid of the shame. Like totally. I'm telling you, I'm raising my hand saying this was, this was, this was my addiction. Now, what I love that you just pointed out, Brandon, is I think we're finding out more and more with that, with all kinds of addictions, right? No matter whether we're talking about alcohol, cigarettes, pornography, the, the, the actual chemical or whatever it is, is not the real issue, right? That's what you're saying. You had to dig Literally. into, or you're asking the question, yeah. why would you turn to pornography? Why are you turning to this image right. to get a high? Yeah, what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah, no. And it's interesting. You nailed it. Totally, Pat, that the addiction cycle doesn't matter if someone's addicted to if they're turning to drugs, sex, porn, porn or food food or the screen. Mm -hmm. So easy just to numb out for hours on end. Saw some recent stats that the average American spends over 19 hours a day on screen time. Uh, because there's multiple screens. Because they're not even on... sleeping as much as they're supposed to. <laughs> exactly. Literally, literally. Yeah. Sometimes we're like watching TV and on our phones. And so that like doubles the <laughs> amount of screen time. But just how easy it is to turn to these other things. Because the addiction cycle encompasses this idea that when we feel this moment of pain, uh, we start to turn into ourselves to resolve our problems. And once we can't figure that out, instead of reaching out for help, we turn to whatever our vice is. Whether it's food, alcohol, drugs. And then we try to get that to solve our problem to feel better. And then eventually it does for a moment, but kind of brings back this moment of pain, which starts the whole feedback cycle over again. And the only way to break out of addiction cycles is instead of reaching into yourself to try and resolve things is to reach out to someone. And so most addicts, they actually, they don't have a problem wanting something too much. They have a problem managing their emotions and having healthy relationships so they can lean on people in tough times. So addiction is an emotionally intimacy disorder. It's an emotional intimacy disorder. It's saying mm -hmm. I don't- an emotional- Intimacy disorder. Would you say, is it, would it be fair to say that probably most of us have an addiction issue of something? Like, oh, I think so. Like, I think especially with the screens now yeah, too, it's just yeah. that, I feel like that's kind of like a given. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I say that right? because, yeah. you know, some of our audience may be driving right now listening and go, I don't know if this applies to me and I mean, I, yeah, I don't know I, that there's a human that I know, including myself, that I would go, if you're really honest with yourself, you're probably addicted to something. And what did you just say? It's an emotional intimacy issue dis then? Disorder, yeah. A it's a mismanaging of your emotions. Saying I feel a painful emotion, I don't know how to hold this space and resolve this, and so I'm going to numb out or do something to try to take away that yeah. pain. And so although not everything that we experience or engage in can clinically be defined as an addiction, I do think that as just like in the West, in America. Sorry. Yeah, I think that we just have a lot of opportunities and a lot of things just at the tip of our fingers to just numb out. Yeah. And that can turn yeah. into an addiction. So it's like not everyone that's gonna look at porn is gonna become addicted, right. but there's many people that can be, develop a compulsion that's short of an addiction, but they're still using pornography to manage their right. emotions. Yeah. yeah, and addiction is even defined by the point of use where your life starts to become unmanageable mm -hmm. and relationships get hurt, yourself gets hurt. Um, so that's the point of addiction. Is it like becoming increasingly more unmanageable? You're not managing your life well because of whatever this is. And there's right. now negative so right. consequences. Screen time, yep. pornography, Holy, which I feel alcohol, food. whatever. Yeah. Many people are food. able to mostly get by. Food. Thank <laughs> <Right>. you. <laughs> 
might be my. I gotta watch myself. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like most people I know are able to manage their lives and still have like a compulsion thing with their phone. Um, So I think that's even hoping like saying that, okay, not, we don't have to be scared of like being addicted to all these things, but it is like, okay, at what point am I like leaning on this stuff for emotional support? that's robbing me of opportunities to have really significant relationships. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you might say if you have this this compulsion that's that's maybe leading you toward not managing your life well, you should probably be aware because you're you're either addicted or you're getting very close. Definitely a check yeah. engine light. Yeah, check engine yeah. light. Definitely yeah, check engine light. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so how how does uh attachment theory fit in all this? First of all, now again, this is what's fun. The audience right now is listening to attachment. Most of them are probably going attachment theory. What is that? I am too. What is it? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, attachment is, and the, this whole conversation has been a perfect segue into all of it. It is. Um, attachment. Thank, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Awesome <laughs> job. Thank you so much. Attachment basically is defined by the idea of it is how we connect with others. It is the lens at which we see ourselves and others through and the way in which we connect with other people. So that's the basic idea for attachment. Um, and we see that. There's um, a few different categories for how attachment gets talked about. Uh, We'll probably, there's lots of different ways we can like jump into this, but I think it'd be good to start with um, just seeing the premise that there's two types of attachment. There's secure attachment and insecure attachment. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have that quote for secure attachment? We, so at Red Light Rebellion, I kind of joke that we are just kind of packaging because we take a lot of information that Other experts have. Oh, like, you do what all speakers do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, what everyone else has. Solomon like, wrote 3,000 years like, ago, there's nothing new under the sun. So there's exactly. not a speaker out there that doesn't. We're making it applicable for. So, yeah, yeah, you guys are looking at the best, right? Getting the best of everything. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and yeah. so attached because as humans, we're relational beings. Like we need relationship to survive. And so attachment is how we do relationships, yeah. essentially. Good or um, bad? Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So secure attachment is when there is rupture in the relationship. So some type of like wounding or disconnection has happened in a relationship, but the securely attached person knows that repair is inevitable and will be here shortly. So there's confidence in the relationship. They know that, Hey, like you hurt my feelings, but I know we're going to be able to get through this. So there's just this confidence, the security in the nature of that relationship. So there, there would be, if, if you're in a, if you have an attachment like that, it's a very safe, Yes. Secure. Yeah. We're going to have yeah. conflict at times. We're going to have to deal with things at times. We're going to we're going to hurt each other at times, mm-hmm. but we'll figure it out. Yes. It's the okay. bodily based expectation that connection is inevitable, mm-hmm. that there will be repair regardless of and that there's we don't have to sacrifice either of our identities that for that. connection. Well, that's huge, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So big. So big. Because an, a lot of times an unhealthy where when you're in an unhealthy relationship, one person may be sacrificing their identity to try to make this attachment work, yep. but then it's right. actually not a safe and secure attachment. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. I'm catching on to this really quickly. <laughs> you are, you it's are. Pretty yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then you also have insecure attachment. Yeah. So you've got secure okay. attachment and then there's three types of insecure attachment. Okay, so what is insecure? Attachment? Yeah, so insecure attachment, there's um, anxious attachment, which is where um, someone is kind of like clinging in the relationship where when things are not okay, they start to move closer to make sure to manage like, okay, how do we like resolve this? in a way that might make someone feel like, oh, wow, this is a lot. Um, the flip Where it's of- like, you're not okay, and therefore I'm not okay either. So and so I'm- I have to try oh. to fix this okay. type of video. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The flip of that would be avoidant attachment, which is there is issues, so I got to get space shut until- like Kind of a shutdown thing? Yeah, yeah. Shutdown, space, distance, lack of acknowledgement, just ignoring, 
um, all of that fit into avoidant. Like, you're not okay, but I'm okay. And I can't not, I can't be not okay with you. So I've got to like distance <laughs> myself from the situation. And then there's a mix of those two. And which is disorganized attachment. Yeah. So that's where like you may have felt from someone in the past, like kind of this weird push pull energy yeah. or, um, yeah, it, it can present in all sorts of different ways, but it really is a combination of those things, which usually a is passive a, aggressiveness in it, which yeah, is usually yeah. a result of compound trauma for someone that has both of those. Mm -hmm. yeah. doing what, yeah. what was it? Disorganized attachment. Disorganized yeah. attachment. So there's usually some kind of trauma, pretty serious trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that, and, and that trauma is affected how they do relationships. So they don't do relationships really well. Correct. They don't know how to do they relationships. They don't know how. Well. Because they've got all these attachment wounds, yeah. they don't know how to bond with someone securely and feel safe in that yeah. relationship. So they're constantly feeling unsafe. Sometimes they want to like cling and then sometimes they want to run away. Yeah. And it's like this weird back and forth that the other person, it's just really difficult to know how to navigate it, that. It's interesting because he's describing this. And again, like like most of the audience right now, this is all new to me. So yeah, yeah. But as you're describing the unhealthy ones that were what did you call it? The insecure. Insecure. Yeah, yeah. There's since there's no fully human being, fully healthy human being, mm -hmm. there's probably some elements of those that we would see in ourselves. Or right? you Absolutely. may go like I'm pretty healthy and I'm in a pretty healthy relationship. But when you just describe those three, there's like one of them where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And that's right. No one is perfectly securely attached in all the relationships. And we can have different attachment styles in different relationships as well, too. And so we may like feel super secure in this one and then like super avoidant in this yeah. other one. Yeah. Uh, holidays are a great time to see. You know, Assess just all of the attachment stuff come yeah. up. And so if I send you 12 texts when you leave here today, you'll like, know which one is mine. Okay? Get to the door. Like, yeah, yeah. What do you think? So when do we need to redo this? Do you this? still like yeah, me? Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so where does that come from, though? How, where do we build that? Is that something that we end up, you know, at a really, really early age we have it subconsciously or? Yeah, really good question. And so Thank it, you. <laughs> it, <laughs> well, I like this interview. You keep complimenting me. Right, right. Um, it is very much like our attachment is, um, studies have shown that it's solidified from the, by the time you're two starts by the time you're around six months old. And so literally before you even have a concept for anything, your attachment is for the most part, like there, and then early childhood solidifies those attachment narratives. And then from there, we when just you say attachment like, narratives, the stories we're telling ourselves. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. uh, uh, also, or like our attachment map. And so we can think of attachment also like a map where you like on our way here, I like just pulled up um, where we're at and hit go and it like gave me a route. There's a couple different options and our attachment, we can even think of it as a map that's guiding us to points of safety because our brain is like an anticipation machine. It's always trying to anticipate, OK, what is going to happen in these next situations? How do I find safety, security in these things? Mm -hmm. And everyone has a totally different map based on your relationship with your primary caregiver in those formative years. Now you said caregiver can be, is it caregivers or is it really connected to so really connected with mom, really connected with mom. Yeah. So, so that was another good question, but seriously, it's, no, it's, it's, it's both, it but babies really yeah. they're They theorize that babies can only attach with one person um, in their like infancy. And so that's usually mom. Mom's the life I giver. I knew we were just secondhand. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. It's always, look at Mother's Day and Father's Day. <laughs> There's a difference. Way more effort on but, Mother's Day. But, I, you know, so I'm being, I'm joking about that, but they're, they're it, like, mm -hmm. that's somewhat true and you'll feel it. You, yes. It, that's well, and mom has a nine month head start. 
if you think about it too, like <laughs> there's a connection that's happening yeah, yeah. that yeah. Well, and like their else. baby's cells will actually stay in the mother for up to like multiple decades. And then if the mother's heart gets physically hurt, the cells rush to the heart to try to heal the heart. Are you kidding Isn't me? that fascinating? So like Charmin still has all the like cells of all your kids. Actually, just her. Ryan Kyle. Yeah, in her. And, and then I don't have a single cell. Not a single cell. No. <laughs> no wonder but, they're more attached to it. <laughs> but doesn't that make sense why it's easier for a mother to attach to the oh, child? Yeah, yeah. But the the father has a utility of protection and providing. So it, you're still providing. So some of the narratives they're going to be figuring out with this this connection mm -hmm. is oh, yeah. going to be a, if a dad is doing a good job is helping them understand safety and security and some of those things. But in and yeah. out, I heard one um, person say that there's this a difference between like this is kind of attachment It's kind of going off topic, but there's mothering and fathering and there's different roles. And so mothering is creating safety within the home and that nurturing where the fathering is almost like bringing the world into the home and exposing the child to almost like the dangers of the world in a safe context and space. That's why dads are throwing their kids up in the air and moms are freaking out and like let's keep them <laughs> on the ground and dads are like doing these crazy things with their kids because they're exposing them to the world in a space that feels loving and safe and secure where the mother's about that nurturing and that like almost holding and so it's two different roles that the child needs the child needs both of those roles yeah. from their biological yeah. parents um, but that like attachment starts at infancy. So as humans, like we're a Mago Dei, we're made in the image of God and God yeah. is a triune God. He is in perfect relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so part of our Mago Dei is doing relationship with one another. And so we need that. That's hardwired into our biology. And loneliness kills faster than nearly anything else in the world can, more than air pollution, more than uh, medical issues and smoking and, and all those things, right? Like yeah, and Loneliness kills. What's interesting is is we go back to sh what does shame drive us to? Loneliness. Loneliness. Exactly. I it's can't, disconnection. I'm not going to share. I'm not going to be open. I'm not going to, you know. Mm -hmm. So, because yeah, it's yeah. the shame is the fear that we are somehow unworthy of the love and connection that we so yeah. desperately need. Yeah. And so it's that break of connection. And so as babies, we enter the world looking for that connection, looking for someone to see us. Yeah. And that's usually the mother. And so the mother provides all of that. And so the mother attuning to her baby's needs, being able to say, hey, the baby's crying and it is hungry. And so I'm now going to feed baby or baby got scared. So now I'm going to comfort baby um, or baby is tired. So now I'm going to soothe baby like all of that is what they call attunement and a mother being able to attune to her child develops and establishes secure attachment because the child knows i am safe with mom mom is going to take care of me now it doesn't mean that a mother has to do that perfectly like the best moms that attune the best usually get it right about 50 percent of the time and that's so for parenting about, in general that's too. for parenting in general so that's yeah. not like it's not like oh my gosh like i didn't attune to my kid last <laughs> week right, right. We're, on the dice. <laughs> we're going to therapy <laughs> now <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you, you know. don't have to free because no parent does it. We I was just in a conversation yeah. mm -hmm. last night with again my sister in law and and wife because we all have adult children now and we're like man once you have adult children you look back and uh, you go there's no way you get to this point don't look back and go yeah we made some mistakes mm -hmm. but you're or saying just misses yeah yeah misses yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so so it's not like someone who's listening has to be freaking out right no. now going like I got to get this right or my kid's totally. never going to be able to attach to another human being. But because secure attachment, it knows that ruptures are going to happen and it's inevitable that it's going to be repaired. So secure attachment doesn't mean that there's not ruptures in the relationship. It means that 
uh, repair is inevitable, that eventually we'll be able to attune with one another and reconcile that. And so it's not a perfect relationship because none of us are perfect, um, but it's that security that like, hey, we can both figure this out and we're going to make it still. So when we connect that to choices, because again, when we do yeah. this podcast, we yeah, talk about it's really about the power of choices and the complexity of choices. We as human beings, again, you said in Mago Deo, we, we're creating the image of God. We're the pinnacle of God's creation. We're not just like animals running on instinct. We have the power of choice. But it's more complex than simply saying like, yeah, I just choose yes or no. <laughs> because of like what you're talking. I mean, more and more we study the brain, the more and more we're finding out that there's a lot of sometimes crap we're bringing from our yes. childhood, even if we had a healthy one, you yes. know. Um, yeah. But we're bringing stuff with us that's making the our ability to make good choices more difficult than we think. Is that or the right? the choices we want to make. Or the choices we want to make. Yeah. So, and that goes back so, to the So math. differentiate that. I said good choices and you, you said the choices we want to make. Why did you change that up? I think that good indicates morals and I'm not sure every choice is a moral choice. Okay. If yeah. that makes sense. I see what you're saying. And so someone may want to do something. Yeah. It's not necessarily a moral choice, yeah. like a moral right or wrong. Yeah. But they're still, they, they still may be harder for them to make that choice. Or think about like a marriage, right? Like think about you get into a fight with your spouse and you're like, I want to go to them and apologize. Now that can, might be the right choice to make in that situation in the sense of like, that's going to help create repair. But let's say you've got some um, attachment wounds in there. Let's say there's some dynamics in the relationship that brings up insecurity. I want to apologize, but I'm scared that they're still mad at me and they're going to like stonewall me or they're not going to receive it. And in my mind, the story I'm telling myself about that is that I'm not worth connecting with and I'm unlovable and they don't like me. Now, all of that can go back to childhood, but that's in a marriage. And so we just remember we the narrative. We brought that with us. Yeah. That's implicit memory, like Brandon was kind of describing. Those yeah, are the yeah. maps. And yeah. so it's not necessarily a moral choice of going and saying, I'm sorry. It's that I want connection. It's that yeah. connection bid that we're there. That's a inherently vulnerable. Yeah. And so if we, if if that vulnerability can't be held sacred and that's not met with empathy and compassion and vulnerability yeah. back, it's a very scary space. And so every time we step into an attachment bid, we're putting ourselves out there. And that's that's just a very scary thing to do. So what was the terminology like the unhealthy? There was three there's what was that? Yeah, uh avoidant, anxious, and disorganized. Okay. So let's let's walk through this really quickly because yeah, you were yeah. just describing like in a marriage. You have this disagreement and then you're going to come, but we'll say again for the audience, if some of them aren't married or whatever, yeah. any yeah. relationship, any really, yeah. but we'll say a marriage yeah. right now, because that's an easy one to understand, but it could be friends. It could be yep. a, a parent, boss, an employee, yep. parent. Okay. Yep. But so, something like, you you know, that you want to go say, I'm sorry, or make this right. You want to do that. So the three things, the three ways is one of them. The one that you mentioned really is I'm, 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 a, I'm afraid, right? That'd probably fall into like avoidant. Avoidant. I think how you defined it. Yeah. It yeah. could be. Yeah. yeah. And that's where like they can present so many different ways, like mm -hmm. based on what those wounds are. What would be the one where, well, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah. Yeah. No. Was, yeah. I was going to be, you were going to go deep. I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> go with that. No. I don't know if Keep I was going. actually. Um, <laughs> I set you I, up now. You better, you better right, call no, something good. Based on what those narratives are that we have in our heads, mm -hmm. like it can, the different ways just from yeah. my therapy process, seeing other people process their trauma in different ways, like the stories that we feel in our bodies that start to present in this context um it's there's a lot of 
yeah. yeah I think an on. example for what you were kind of asking is the avoid the avoidant is like the runner and the anxious is the pursuer. So in that kind of situation, I like like let's say the uh, one person wants to apologize, and so they go, they like knock on the door. It's like, hey, hun, like, can we talk? Can we talk? And they're like, nope, don't want to talk, don't want to engage. Well, then twenty minutes later come back, hey, can we talk? And now it's, and they do it over and over and over again. They feel so flustered that they can't yeah. reconcile this. And the other person is feeling so almost like kind of bogged down or yeah. like suffocated that they keep running. So that's usually the dance that we're playing. Usually mm -hmm. we're attracted to someone different than us. And so oftentimes you're going to see an avoidant with an anxious, <laughs> anxious with an avoidant, you know? So those are kind of the dynamics and how that can kind of look. You usually have one person that's more of the pursuer and one person that's more yeah. of the, and there's, there's different like just per temperaments too. Yeah. Some people are like, no, yeah. I need to take a walk and really think through this and talk to someone and bounce some ideas off of. And that's a healthy way of navigating. Yeah that versus saying, nope, you're not safe and you're too much right now. And so I need to distance myself from you. So yeah. the actions could look the same, but the narrative and the story is different that determines the health of that specific situation, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. And what's so fascinating about this, again, when we go to the complexity of choice, human mm -hmm. choice, if someone's 23, 27, 35, 51, 65, the, the way they're dealing with that is probably a lot of it is going back to what you're saying with this is is how they connected, whether that was healthy, unhealthy, when they were starting at six months up until. Totally. And that's, Brandon kind of mentioned this term implicit memory. And it's, um, there's two types of memory uh, clinically. There's explicit, implicit. Explicit is like giving directions to someone. Hey, turn left at the circle K, yeah. turn right there. Implicit is more of like uh, muscle memory. Um, like many people in military or sports, like have, yep. I just wrestled a friend last weekend and <laughs> threw his butt on the, actually he threw my butt on the ground. Stuff came back to you. <laughs> it's a, literally, it was so funny. For because, both of them too. Yeah, for both of us. It just was like instinct. And he actually picked something up that I like used to do all the time that I didn't even realize I did. And yeah. I was like, oh wow, this is so crazy. Um, but it's just like, it just happens. Cool. And Oh, okay. Your boy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I okay. owned him. He okay. thought I let him think he was winning. Yeah. Oh, and then he was, he, it yeah. did look yeah. like, yeah. It, 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 it looked did. bad for Brandon at first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But your implicit. Implicit it memory did. took over. It's like the knee jerk reaction. Yeah. yeah. How we're just going to respond. And we can even think of it like in the context of relationships, like when you're driving, something cuts into the road, there's on one side a woman with a baby, and then three old ladies shopping on the other side, and you have to turn one direction. What you do in that moment, mm -hmm. you, you're not making decision. You're just reacting. You don't know what you would do in that situation. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to like, what, all of this stuff, it's just a reaction. And so many times in our relationships, based on these narratives, stories, attachment, there's an implicit memory that we have of how we navigate relationships where we're not making a choice. We're not making a decision. It's just a reaction that's happening. And unless we have awareness around our story, around where we've come from, around what our even feelings are, it's really hard to navigate in ways um, to get the outcomes that we want or even make the choices that we want to. But the good news is, is that we're proving more and more. We had a podcast guest who was my sister mm -hmm. a couple months ago, and she was talking a lot about something kind of similar. Yeah. But she said, the good news is uh, the more we study the brain, we more the more we see that you can create new pathways. Yes. Yeah. So and even if you're 60 or so, like someone my age, it's going to be harder for me to do that than someone your age because mm -hmm. I'm older than you. Mm -hmm. and yeah, those, yeah. those pathways are ingrained if I haven't changed them yet. But I still can. 
Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. the good news, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So PTSD is implicit memory. And so have we ever been in a situation or even any type of triggers and implicit memory? So if we've ever been in a situation where someone says something or there's a smell or there is a lighting, something like that, and we can have a positive or negative response to it. We instantly like our stomach drops, our palms start sweating, like we've got a lot of heat, our our heart starts beating. And we're like, why did that happen? We're not navigating that happening. It's our bodies reacting. It's our bodies instantly reacting. And emotion comes with that. Narratives and stories about ourselves, other people, how the world works all comes with that as well. Now that can be a positive thing. Like we might start to like feel really elated and we get a smile on our face for some reason. And and there's like a lot of like positivity with that. We're like, oh, what was that? That happens all the time, every single day, every situation that we're in. And so what implicit memory does is it's trying to predict the future by remembering something from the past that was familiar. So anything, something that anytime something feels familiar to us, our, our brain and our body instantly goes to the last time or the first time or the most important time it felt that before. And it's instantly putting our brains, our bodies, our emotions all back in that space so that we can try to survive that. It's almost like the brain is like this huge file cabinet. Yes. And and it whips that open and it just pulls out that file and whatever's in that file, the emotions, whether even if they were, so they may be bad emotions, mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense for this current situation, but that's coming out with it. Exactly. But that's right. happening with implicit one that's happening instantaneously. Oh, that's, those are nanoseconds. Right. And that's not something, yeah. that happening isn't good or bad. It just is. Yeah. And so our choice in that is what are we going to do with that? How are we going to handle that situation? And many times it takes a lot of therapy. It takes a lot of introspection and self-awareness and healing in order to be able to slow it down enough to recognize in the moment what's happening and then start to change the narrative. But that has to happen in the context of relationship. That cannot happen in isolation. Which is why this is so important because if it has to happen in relationship. And relationships will hurt you. Or Yeah. How do you heal that? How do you heal that? Yeah. So shame is a social wound. Shame happens because a relationship has been broken. And now we feel we're somehow less than unworthy, unloved in one way or another. But because it's a social wound, it has to be healed socially. It has to be healed with other people as well, which is Imago Day. And a lot of that shame is probably coming implicitly, like mm-hmm. something that was said or done to us mm-hmm. when we were children. And yep. we didn't even realize that we were creating a narrative in our mind. So Which so babies, why attachment is so significant and why they look at childhood so much with that is because a child that's dependent on mom and dad for survival, for food, for shelter, for water, for the basic necessities in life, if they feel unloved, that is life or death to a child because they literally cannot survive outside of that. And so because it's life or death to a child, that, um, that wiring in us never goes away. And so when we feel unloved by someone, if we feel rejected by someone, that's life or death. It's neurological too. So. Is that is that why, this is probably one of the reasons why kids are so extreme. Like yes, sometimes a kid, you're like, I told you, you couldn't have a popsicle. I mean, we all like have bad days, up. right? Yeah, but yeah. yeah, they're just like, but like you're saying, they don't, re- but it feels like life and death to them. Yes. Yeah. Where once we mature and we become an adult, it's like, okay, I didn't get a popsicle today. It's not yeah. that big of a deal. Yes, yes. Right. And we well, you should see sometimes. Well, and that's where, <laughs> yeah. It's like, did your parents navigate of like, hey, you can't have a popsicle and there's still like a connection bid mm-hmm. and like there's still um, relationship happening or is it, hey, you can't have a popsicle, ice. Yes. And now I'm mad at you because you keep asking. I'm going to stonewall you as your parent. Like, that's so now life you're, and now you're learning an unhealthy way to do 
attachments. Well, now as a kid, you have to learn how to navigate that. What am yeah. I going to do with that? How am I going to survive this situation? Because what's fascinating is that when we feel emotional pain, specifically rejection or betrayal, the part of the brain that registers that is the same part as physical pain. And so the brain doesn't know the difference between the emotional pain versus the physical pain. Really? Yes. And that's why it's so so much life or death for us. That's why when we're so in conflict, it hit, is huge. I hit my thumb with a hammer right here. Mm -hmm. Or you say something, if you if you knew me well enough to, to know how you're going to just cut me emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Same. The same part of the brain? Is the same. same part of the brain. Dealing with that? that? Well, think mm -hmm. about it. Like, isn't it insane how relational turmoil can get someone to have a physical response mm -hmm. of tears? Mm -hmm. Like they're physically, they're changing based on just emotions. Mm -hmm. Just emotions. Now, yeah. the cool part about this is that us as humans, we can help regulate that in one another. And that's how that healing happens. So when we enter into another's story and space and we can hold that space for one another and we can share our story and they can reflect that back to us in a, in a way that feels loving and safe and accepting where we feel we belong, it can change the narrative and rewire the brain, which is like so cool. Also the wow. gospel, which is fascinating. Yeah. And it's, we have that because of mirror neur neurons yeah. in our brains. And so like when a mom is comforting a baby, when the baby's crying, let's say it's like learning how to walk, how to walk and falls down and hits their head on like the side of the table and the baby and the mom is like shushing it and, you know, like trying to comfort it because the mom, the mom has mirror neurons. So the mom's able to recognize, oh, baby's hurt, baby's crying, baby needs comfort, instantly goes into comfort. So the mom's attuning to that baby. The baby also has mirror neurons. And so now the baby is learning how to comfort itself while the mom's comforting him or her. So the baby's now learning, oh, I can be safe and okay and I can learn how to calm myself down. And so that's oftentimes what's in the spikes in like the uh, development of kids is when we get like those really big emotions. Um, but it's when the brain is just firing in like new ways. And so the, the parent being able to attune and redirect the child and then teach them, how do we handle these situations? How do we negotiate our life in this way? It's teaching the child how to self-soothe, which is super, super cool. Well, we can do that as, as adults. I was just going to say yeah. that. So you're saying yeah. we do that for each other as adults then? All the time. When when it's when it's a healthy one yes when we feel safe and secure yeah as you're saying and it's to the point that the the left and right side of our brain so the left part is the more logical side uh and the one that's interpreting like our words and everything and in this conversation as we're talking what's crazy is the emotional side of our brain uh those mirror neurons are able to see what's happening like you're able to see what's happening on my face and your face is able to respond to that before the left side of your brain is able to interpret the words that i'm saying and the meaning of those words <laughs> that's like how we fast. are fascinating as human beings it's so, it's so crazy cool. and so and with like that moment so i'm what, reading you before i can logically read understand you. yeah yes. like there's a that emotional those mirror neurons and so um, babies that grow up with a primary care caregiver that's able to attune to them significantly in those ways. Um, studies show that their neural networks from their prefrontal cortex to their amygdala are thick. They've got like robust pathways for their prefrontal cortex, which again, no other animal has one of those, just humans do. That's the part of our brain that's responsible for using insight to think in the future, weigh out pros and cons. Um, empathy. Have empathy, regulate compassion, regulate everything. Um, someone is set up to be able to use their brain to actually think and process relationally when they were attuned to. Uh, the opposite is also true. When that attunement wasn't there, 
someone that doesn't have those neural pathways may find in the future that when conflict comes up with a significant relationship, they find themselves going very much that like fight, flight, or free space very quickly because there's not as many pathways in their brain, which is, but again, to the point of what Brianna was talking about and what you're saying too, Pat, is that what's so hopeful is that as adults, we can learn all these pieces of even the narrative story, all these things we can as adults still reparent ourselves and still invite safe people into our lives to take these steps to become like have a healthy brain and have a healthy approach and healthy attachment. And, um, and all of that's called in, um, integration. So yes. when our prefrontal cortex and our limbic system are talking like that and our uh, prefrontal cortex is able to regulate our emotions in that way, slow things down enough to be able to respond and make the choices we actually want to make in a situation, that's an integrated brain. So when all parts of our brain are talking and working together the way they're supposed to be. So Jesus, being a perfect human, had a perfectly integrated brain. And as humans, because of our life experiences, we get disintegration in various parts for different reasons. Reasons. And so the healing process is becoming fully integrated within ourselves and with other people. Yeah. And for our listeners, I'm going to use one of my wife's favorite lines. Wherever you're at right now, you just, there's no shame in that. It oh. is what it is. Mm-hmm. That's what my, yeah. wife when my kids would complain about something. She always be like, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, right. that's, I think you, one of you said this earlier on, it's just, it's whatever got you to where you're at. Like if you go, well, man, those those um, pathways that you were just describing, Brandon, those aren't developed very well <laughs> because of how I grew up or whatever, but it is what it is. It's okay. So what are you going to do from here? Right. That's, exactly. And there's hope in that. And it's not an Absolutely. is what it is of like, oh, well, that's yeah. just how I am. And yeah. that's how it's just going to be is, yeah. no, this is where I am. Well and there's no shame in that. I'm yeah. not less than because so of that. Forward and- so let's figure out what does, what does my healing look yeah. like in yeah. this? What would be some practical steps for the listeners? Like one, one of them I think I took, and then you guys give some input on this too. But yeah. I was thinking right away where it's just practically just going, I need to just pay attention to that a little bit more. Mm. Like I want to just watch that a little bit more. Like when mm-hmm. when, when I have that um, implicit narrative that takes place and all of a sudden I, I close up, mm-hmm. um, I want to just pay attention and go, okay, why, what just happened? Why is that? So that's a real yeah. practical thing is like, yep. just start paying attention to your reactions sometimes, mm-hmm. how you're physically feeling, yeah. uh, emotionally, what just sit, what you, so, so that would be one. What would you suggest too? What yeah, some- definitely. Which is really good. I think even with what you're saying too, one thing that I've noticed, first thought actually is therapy. Uh, therapy is just... Mm-hmm someone helping you guide you through the skill sets of paying attention and having curiosity, being able to help you look at things and dig at it a little bit. Uh, And I think therapy has become much more popular over even the last five years. There's less of a like a negative stigma stigma on it and everything. But um, yeah, therapy is just having someone walk with you that's qualified to ask Mm -hmm. the questions and have a context and be a guide is so invaluable. And that's why therapy works because they're attuning to you as well so it's yeah. that mirroring they're helping a little bit with mm-hmm. that. yeah and they'll help teach the ways to be curious and so you even mentioned mm-hmm. like being curious about your body and stuff i know for me like in my process i've learned like man when my jaw starts to clench uh and like if my fist starts getting tight my forearms my calves that's a sign for me like okay i need to take a step back because my prefrontal cortex is about to go offline and i'm gonna go like full, full on limbic. <laughs> yeah yeah and so that's good like 
now I know and have that awareness of, okay, like, because your body will respond before. You're catching it before that implicit piece happens. Yeah. And so it's tuning yeah. into your body first and your body is going to tell you what's happening and then what your emotions are. You know, I just, I just learned, like, again, I'm 51 and I think it was in the last year I learned, I, I started paying attention to that, read it in a book or counselor. So I don't yeah, know what yeah. it was. But for me, it's right here. I, I can mm. feel a physical like in my heart or stomach or whatever's here. Mm -hmm. I didn't do well in anatomy. <laughs> but there's there's something I start I start paying attention. I'm like, I'll feel it's not it's nothing huge, but when I feel that in there, I'm I know something's something's happening right now. What's fascinating is 90% of your serotonin, which is like the feel good, bonding, happy chemical, is stored in your gut. So that's why we get gut feelings. That's why our stomach clenches when something like is upsetting us. And so we've got all these uh, neurotransmitters that are actually housed in different parts of our body that then send responses up to our brain and back and forth, wow. which is fascinating. So tuning into the body is huge. Okay. Yeah. So what would you have one? So I, I said tuning into the body. Mm -hmm. I just told you. <laughs> no, I was kind of describing that. You just, you just succinctly just, put it. Yeah, yeah. You talked about therapy. Would you, would you have anything to add? I was going to say also just community is so massive. I think, um, I think I first read this in the book Wild at Heart, but asking people. Great book. Mm -hmm. I love John that Eldridge. book so much. Yeah. yeah. He's um, actually spearheading a lot of these conversations in the church right now too. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he's a great. John Eldridge. Yeah. Yep. Great story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, I remember in that book, talked about asking the people in your life what they actually think about you. Mm. <laughs> Just ask the people that you actually do life, hey, what do you actually think about me? Mm. What do you, like, do you see blind spots? Like, what do you see as my blind spots is probably the better question. Uh, what do you see as strengths? What do you see as things that uh, I'm maybe, like, needing to grow in? And I think self-awareness can only happen in the context of community it is impossible for self-awareness to happen in isolation <laughs> they can't, they can't the people that are listening can't see me smile when you said that it is so true that is so true yeah it is and that's where like again like loneliness just kills on so many different fronts and that's why it's so easy in isolation to get wrapped up in these narratives where when we're actually talking through these narratives and bouncing things off people, it's so much easier to get grounded back in reality. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, having community uh, and creating a space of openness and vulnerability is, I think, a huge way to, because part of the hope in um, the strategy and the hope of re um, doing our attachment and everything we're talking about is this idea of reparenting ourselves. And that's the really exciting part is that we can, so you talked about memories uh, being like in a file cabinet and opening them up. What's really, really interesting is that memories like that file is not static. It's not written in stone. And so we can literally go back. And it's not that we are lying to ourselves about what happened or trying to change the details, but it's how we remember those things mm -hmm. that changes. So thinking back to childhood and like, oh, man, the situation of um, you could say like the situation of abuse where like I was alone or like trapped and like didn't have any way out or like um, I was alone in this situation, being able to have someone come in and reparent that with you of what are some of the truths or affirmations in that space that you can remember it differently um, along. And that's like, that's in the context of a bigger process of, I <laughs> went to a really intense example there, <laughs> but that's in the context of like holding space for the negative emotions that go along with that story as well you know, too. You know, what's so interesting about that is this, this is why when you say reparenting, use that phrase, this is why therapists or counselors a lot of time will do something like, um, what did you need to hear at that? Like you, exactly. you heard this, exactly. 
you know, it was a teacher, a coach, or someone said that, what would have helped you? What did you need to hear that? You know, and maybe it's like, I needed to hear that it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you tried your best and you lost and, and your value isn't based on winning or losing. I needed to hear that. That's yeah. why they do that, right? Yeah. Is they're helping you reparent? Exactly. Which, Rewriting by the way, the for narrative. the big, strong, tough, manly men that are driving right now, they're like, oh, <laughs> there's a wounded child in all of us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There's a wounded child in all of us. So yeah, this, yeah get rid of that think, whole image. You, well, you can think of it in different language too. Sometimes we're like, oh, reparenting, <laughs> my like inner child, that feels like like really like weird it's like these are triggers these are narratives and we can manage our triggers oh my gosh or how to manage our triggers yeah i i it's i've watched actually a few like reactions to david goggins online and um from therapists and some of them were like yeah this guy is a little like out there on like stay hard and like all this stuff but the listening to him talk more he is literally doing this exact same process he talks about in a super manly way where he's like cussing a lot and like man i'm getting in there i'm going to these dark places like in the basement where like Mm -hmm. nothing is good like it's just total darkness and depravity and i'm taking notes Mm -hmm. in there i'm like learning what's happening Mm -hmm. in this space so that when i come out i know how to stay grounded and like he's doing so he's so for the listeners who don't know david goggins is yeah, yeah yeah like navy sea but he was he was ultra so i'm gonna leave all the athlete. f-bombs that he used to have, <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah, yeah but he would so he's reparents so when he's like running he always runs and he's got the little camera next to <laughs> right, him it's like right. you know i was a fat slob and told myself <laughs> that i couldn't be worth anything but i had to tell myself that's not who i am yeah. i can do it right yeah yeah and he's reparenting yep Absolutely. Maybe in a different way than some of us would. Yes. Right, right. And like his story, like where he came from and everything is super intense. And so it, it, I think it's just so inspiring and hopeful to me that, man, it doesn't matter where you came from. Just this concept of being able to look at the narratives and as an adult step in and be what you needed for yourself when you were younger is so invaluable. And that's what helps rewrite that file cabinet of memories in our brains, which actually changes our future mm-hmm. because how we remember the past directly affects how we make decisions in the future. The choices we choose. And so many of our relational things that we're responding to, like Brianna was describing earlier too, is we're reacting not to the situation in front of us, but to the shadows of our past. Exactly. Wow. And so think of that in the context of God always saying, remember, 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 remember. And when you read all throughout the Old Testament, (laughs) it's like, it's not just remember who I am, but remember you came out of Egypt, you were enslaved and we took you through the Red Sea and then I protected you in the wilderness and your clothes didn't like rip and your shoes didn't tear. And then you got into the promised land and remember that. And it's all about remembering the story of the Exodus over and over and over again. And what does Israel keep doing? They forget that narrative and they go back to the narrative. the narrative, right? Maybe. Well, ish, right? Like it's it's going back to a shame-based narrative. It's going back to a survival narrative, um, a limbic system narrative of we had it better in Egypt. We were slaves, but at least we knew we got food. Yeah. We were this, but at least that. And it, But it's a comfort level. So our nervous systems can actually become attuned to be more comfortable in unhealth than health because yeah. it's familiar. Yeah. And so that's what, when we are familiar with wounding or unhealth or toxicity or like whatever it is, it's more familiar to do that and live that way. And so they had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. That's all they knew. And we know that there's generational trauma too in epigenetics and how that gets passed genetically from one generation to the next. And so they were more comfortable in that space than in freedom and love. 
and comfort and all the things that, and the promised land, all the things that God was providing for them. And so then it's God constantly saying, no, remember, like we're rewriting the story of the nation of Israel constantly. Bree and Brandon, we could talk forever. (laughs) Whenever we get together though, we end up having conversations (laughs) like this, right? It's just like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But man, thank you so much. I mean, we could, we could go on and on. Got to wind it down here. Um, I yes, I know. Okay, so what I love. By the way, I knew this... one of you was going to do that. There was no way I was going to close this down. I was probably going to wait another second. Yeah. Until, yeah, yeah. So what I love about this and when I first learned about attachment and um, trauma and how it affects our brains and relationships is it is completely the gospel. And so it's interesting because I've, I've wrestled with just like the theology surrounding suffering for over a decade and just like a really intense way and trying to navigate my story and figure out what that means and questioning God and his character and, and just all the things. And when it clicked, because it, everyone was like, oh, well, the cross is proof that God enters into our pain and our story. And I was like, that just doesn't feel like it's enough for me, <laughs> which kind of sounds sacrilegious as a Christian to say. But I was just like, yeah, cool. Like he died on the cross, like he was whipped and all those things. And that lasted like a few hours. Like, cool. Like he can identify with my pain, but like I need, I felt like I needed more than that. And it's when someone put Jesus in the context of not just his divinity, but his humanity. And so Jesus was fully human. Jesus knew what it was like to experience disappointment and wounding in his relationships. He knew what it was like to get triggered in his body and have to regulate whatever was coming up for him. And he did all of that in the context of relationship. And Jesus being embodied, Jesus being God in the flesh, knows how to directly attune to us. Like Jesus had mirror neurons. Like Jesus, like, is and was human. Like Jesus has, it's the embodiment of the gospel and and all of it. And so to think that like, oh, in each of my experiences, Jesus' brain was doing the same thing that my brain was. He knows exactly what that feels like. And so it's not just like we have a high priest that can identify with us or have compassion with us and relate to us in the sense of, yeah, he experienced temptation, he experienced these things, but like he he experienced what it meant to be a baby and needed a mom to attune to him. Like he knew what it was like to have friend wounds. Yeah. Like he knew it was like to be rejected yeah. and have that pain, not just in his body on the cross, but in his brain yeah. and in his emotions and in his heart. And so that's where it's just like, that just like opened up a whole different level of Jesus and our suffering. And I think even like he knew what it meant to be in an awkward situation. <laughs> yeah. he, like he knew what it meant. So like we were, um, there's a, we have a resource list um, for all the resources that we pulled the stuff from that. Um, will be in the notes for the show. Um, But one of the books talks about how like Jesus knows what it means to have diarrhea at one point. Like (laughs) Jesus had a full sexuality. That he had limits on and had to. And he knew how to have limits on that. You bring up the word diarrhea and Jesus. (laughs) It's like, this is, yeah. We cannot lose that. We cannot lose that. Like the full human human experience. Exactly. Which is what you quoted Hebrews. Mm -hmm. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying is we don't have a high priest. That doesn't understand, but you're you're taking it to another level. We think of it spiritual. Yeah. And yes, true, but also very human and flesh and sweat and tears and blood and yeah, all of it. You know what drives me crazy with what we do so often with Jesus in 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 the church world so often is we we package him so nice. So so we'll quote Philippians, be anxious for nothing, you know. Mm -hmm. But definitely Jesus lived that better, well, perfect. He lived Mm -hmm. that perfect. Mm -hmm. But it was a battle, mm-hmm. just like it is for us. Mm-hmm. 
he went out often and says he prayed all night. Or you watch him in the garden the night before he's going to die. And it's not like he just quoted some quippy little verses. Be anxious for nothing, Philippians. I'm not worried anymore. He's literally <laughs> no, sweating blood yeah. and ripping up parts of the earth mm -hmm. and weeping and crying. And that's what you're describing. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just a different Jesus than is typically described. Yep. And Jesus probably, he didn't have, I don't know, actually, I don't know. Let me know if this sounds too crazy. I don't know if Jesus had perfect attachment with the people around him. Like, I think he did have perfectly secure attachment with God the Father, but there's probably things that came up where like he maybe felt- But he had- He was a, trying to attach with broken people. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's yes. my point. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't on him. Yeah. I think he had the narrative yeah. because, because of- yeah. God and because he was fully God and fully man. I'm just trying but, to flush but, out. But if we're gonna, yeah, no, yeah. right? Because oh, yes. if we're gonna attach well as two human beings, yeah, it's gonna take both of us for that attachment to be a good, strong, healthy. Right. So even if you're attaching well and I've got my crap I'm dealing with, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's not, and that's what you're saying. So yeah. he had to work through all that mess yeah. with, yeah. with the twelve. Well, it was actually more than twelve. We'll just think of his family. 20, 20, and whatever. even through childhood, yeah. though, yeah. like yeah. even like before Gosh, so everything we know in the Bible, like his whole childhood, he had a full adolescence. Yeah. Like thinking back to our childhood and how long that took, like it took just as long. Yeah. Well, I think grace yeah. too, right? Like there's a lot of relationships we want to repair and we've done our work yeah. in. And yet still, because they're not in that space to repair it, can't be repaired. Like you look at his brothers and sisters that didn't believe in him and like were saying that he was crazy and trying to like hush him up and stuff. And yet Jesus was, he had secure attachment. He was perfect in that way and still couldn't then reconcile those things. And so I think it just shows grace on all sides. And then how much more when we are imperfect and we don't have a fully secure attachment with every single human in our life. And so, yeah, I think that diving into Jesus' humanity and not trying to Sunday school that or trying to I don't I don't know, like placate yep. that, yep. smooth it over, yep. like that to me changes everything and it's it's cool because okay. trauma everything we've talked about is a rupture in relationship and the cure to that is vulnerability connection and relationship and so the gospel being relational and not uh, works-based and not oh i have to do xyz to be good with god but it's purely god saying i love you and i want this relationship with you it's i just don't the more i learn about neuroscience and attachment and like all this stuff the more i'm like the bible had it so freaking right, <laughs> yeah, right like there. how do you deny this <laughs> yeah. like it's beyond yeah. anything else like yeah. it's just so yeah so fascinating so yeah. that was my 10 well, minute little. We needed to say that. So well said. So how do people get a hold of you guys if they wanted to, if they want to connect with you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Red Light Rebellion, we're on most all the social media. Okay. Um, so Instagram, Facebook's Red Light Rebellion, Twitter, Snapchat, Red Light Rebels, I think TikTok, Red Light Rebellion, Red Light Rebels. You can yeah. Check that. But we do have, like Brandon mentioned, uh, like a PDF resource from okay. like the books and podcasts that are that some of our great no, We favorites. can put it in our description or notes. Yeah. 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 So it's redlightrebellion.org slash resilience. Okay. And so and we'll, then you we'll can, it's so a free download and okay. everything's hyperlinked. So you can so just click it in the PDF. We talking about today. Take is, Amazon. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Man, yeah. So outside of like, thank you. outside of like therapy and what we learned from yeah. therapy, like all of that is in all those yeah. books and those podcasts. We're just the it. packaging. Yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, let me, let me make a little plug for you guys though, uh, for our listeners. If you want to give to a great organization, um, Red Light Rebellion, you guys are doing, doing great stuff. Um, I think only eternity will know how many people have maybe, how many young girls and young boys have been prevented 
from going down this road. And we, you know, we used to always say this in the early days, right? For every one girl that's saved, we'd love to see a thousand that were prevented from even going exactly. into this. But not, but not just with human trafficking. Even in you, you're telling your story and helping. I mean, that that room is full of boys and girls that are already addicted to pornography and just helping them deal with that. So you guys have a great organization. If people want to know how, uh, th- how they can give, they just go to red light rebellion, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and this is a great organization. So I'd encourage people to, to give financially to you guys as well and be praying for you guys. Yeah, All right. So two truths and a lie. You're not going to stop me. Oh, we'll right. see about that. Okay. Who's you going first? I kept forgetting mine, so I yeah. have to oh, you go yeah. first. Go first? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I performed at the largest outdoor event in the world. I've never been offered drugs, and my life aspiration was to be a hobo in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> you had to have been offered drugs. Yeah, I was offered drugs. Okay, that's the truth. So now I got a 50-50. Or is that, did you set me up? No, no, no. I got a 50-50 chance, don't I? Oh, no. Wait, was, did you say, did you think that was a truth or a lie? Yeah, that's the truth. That's the truth? Yeah. So yeah, that was my lie. So you got that right. I said I've never been offered drugs. Yeah, and I said you had to have been. been. Yes, yes. So you got that. I've never been offered drugs. That's what you said. Yeah. That was her lie. That was my lie. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. she was lying about it. Yes. Okay, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so you got that lie. right. Yeah. So yeah, but I was offered drugs for the first time on Warp Tour in 2018. I was 26, and I just said no. Yeah. So it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's proof. <laughs> She was really yeah. excited. She was like, someone just offered me drugs. Like, and I just said, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, really you know, like, easy? Yeah. Like, cause you know, parents always like hype you up. Like this yeah. is going to happen. Yeah. You're going to be peer pressured in yeah. high school. Never did. And at 26, I'm finally like, yes. <laughs> like, yeah. I had my opportunity to just say no. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so two truths and a lie. One, I gauge my ears with nails. Two, uh, my grandma taught me how to break pencils with my butt cheeks. <laughs> And three, I got arrested for driving on the sidewalk and running into a cone that was hiding the rest of a light pole that had already been knocked down and told my car. That's the truth. Which one? The last one. That's the truth. Uh, wait, uh, no. That, that, that didn't happen? That didn't happen. Oh, well, actually, the lie okay. is that I got arrested. It actually did okay, happen. It didn't happen. <laughs> I just didn't get arrested. Because I've known you long enough to know that that's, yeah, you have. That's character, Kristen. You've got a lot of stories like that. So I figured right away that was the truth. But you just tweaked it a little bit. I just tweaked it, yeah. Every well, good lie has a lot of truth to it. That's true. That's true. Well done. Well done. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Again. Thank you. Um, yes. Thank you for having us back. And so much fun. Again, I want to tell the audience to check out. We'll have it in the notes mm-hmm. or, or the description below this PDF that you're going to send us and we'll have all of this. So, thank, thank you, you so you. much, right. Pat. There's so much that I can say about that episode, but all I can say is go to the description and the show notes and the PDF that Brandon and Brianna talked about will be there. And they have links to all the things that they were talking about, about the complexity of the human brain. We would love to hear from you. So comment below, or you can email us at info at Like, follow, and subscribe and share No Gray Areas. <laughs> <laughs>